Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. It is not correct to say that Conservative voters have abandoned the Tory government. The government has abandoned Conservative voters. Tory voters stayed at home knowing that the future of the government was in jeopardy. Biggest reason for the shortage of homes in the UK is that we've got a house building system which does not aim to build enough homes. Keir Starmer is more trusted on immigration than the Prime Minister of a Conservative government. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. It's exactly a year since Rishi Sunak took over as Tory leader and Prime Minister. Annas Haribalis, all steady as she goes. When he entered number 10, Sunak enjoyed a degree of goodwill as he set about clearing up the mess following the Liz Trust quasi-Quatang mini-budget. Since then, though, interest rates and government borrowing costs have spiralled even more and are now way above where they were under Truss, with financial markets looking, if anything, even shakier. The opinion polls make tough reading on planet Sunak. Before he took over, around half the public thought he'd make a good Prime Minister. A year on, only around 10% take that view. When it comes to immigration, housing, NHS waiting lists and tax, Sunak leaves many of his own backbenchers and countless voters unimpressed. Co-pilot Pearson's now actively lobbying for the Tories to change leaders again (laughs) before the next general election. (laughs) And away from the UK, violence in the Middle East continues. Having killed 1,400 Israelis on October the 7th, Hamas terrorists continue to hold around 200 hostages in Gaza, with Israel launching retaliatory missile strikes. United Nations Secretary-General Antonio Guterres said on Tuesday there have been clear violations of international humanitarian law in Gaza. He pointed to Hamas's use of civilians as human shields and Israel's bombing of the enclave south after urging a million to evacuate there from the territory's north. Israel is furious at the UN boss's remarks and is now threatening to expel all UN officials from the country, accusing Guterres of attempting to justify Hamas's initial 7th of October attack. It has been another bleak week, Alison. And to add to our woes, this weekend the clocks go back. Time to wrap up warm. Oh, heavens to Betsy, co-pilot. Heavens to Murgatroyd. Who said that? Was that the hair bear bunch or something? I don't know. You normally know these things. Yeah, are your co-pilots feeling a bit battered and bruised this week? I've been getting it in the neck from all sides. I kept thinking back to the marvellous late Carolina Hearns, Mrs Merton. Do you remember? Oh, yeah. yeah, Let's have a heated debate. So we've certainly been having a heated debate, but we'll we'll get on to the Israeli-Gaza thing later, which has 
I have to say, in all the time of doing Planet Normal, we survived the Brexit battles, Liam, and, you know, we were in the trenches through the lockdown wars. But I think this Israeli-Palestine thing is the bitterest conflict and I've been feeling quite jagged and upset about it this week. I have, with a small group, been setting up British Friends of Israel, which is specifically to support British Jews at a time when we've seen a really horrifying increase in anti-Semitic attacks and as well as attacks on Muslims. But we'll talk about that later. But, but you know that I actually thought that I couldn't be attacked more. And then I said in all innocence in my column that I said, said Keir Starmer had all the charisma and appeal of a box of raisin bran. And out of the woodwork, the fans of Raisin Bran are very cross with me. So, who knew? It's the highlight of my day, those raisins sweetened my palate. It reminds me of when Nigel Farage called Herman von Rumpy, who came from obscurity yes. to become head of the European Commission. He said, you got the looks of a low-grade bank clerk and the charisma of a damp cloth. <laughs> Yeah, but don't attack brand names. That's what I, especially oh, not brand, okay. because they're all saying, I, I think yeah. I, I was trying to think what could have been a, if, if listeners have got any suggestions as to any uncontroversial serial we could compare the leader of the Labour Party to. So we weren't able last week, were we, to comment because we were going out on the Thursday, which was the, the date of the vote in the two crucial by-elections, Tamworth and Mid-Bedfordshire. That's right. Election law means journalists can't comment when the polls are actually open. So so we didn't. But we can now. But we've got to say, because I shared something with you earlier, which really made me laugh. So as you said at the top, Liam, it's a year this week when Rishi Sunak took over as leader of the Conservative Party and as Prime Minister unelected, of course, but Downing Street Media Operation had been sending out a video this morning with all of Rishi's achievements. And it culminated in this marvellous panning shot onto the front door of number 10 with the legend, we've achieved and achieved was spelt A-C-H-E-I-V-E-D. <laughs> There's not much that gets your back up more than bad spelling and grammar, is there? Well, from the man who tells us that all of our children have got to study maths to 18, can I suggest that they study English and spelling to 18? But yes, anyway, so those by-elections. Now, had I been able to say what I wanted to say last podcast, I would have said the Pearson theory of where conservatives stand, which I know I've bored you with, Liam, many times. But I would have told you that the two Tory candidates were going to be completely wiped out. And that is indeed what happened. And the two results were so bad that if they were extrapolated nationwide, John Curtis, the great guru of polling, of course, has said that they would give Keir Starmer a landslide bigger than Tony Blair's victory in 1997. But I've actually been doing a little bit of Velma digging this week. Oh, we had... <laughs> so Velma's put on her bottom of the bottle glass specs. So in the 2019 general election, Liam, the Conservatives polled 30,500 votes. This is in mid-Bedfordshire, while Labour got just 10,900. Now, last week, Labour's vote only increased by 700 to 11,600, but it was the Conservative vote that plunged by 20,000. And the vote for the Reform Party, Richard Tice's Reform Party, was bigger than the Labour majority in both constituencies. That's interesting. So we can see reform now starting to be 
a real headache for the Tories, sort of sneaking disillusioned voters who don't detect any conservatism in the so-called conservative government. Now, I have been saying this to you for so long, and I'm going to say it again. It is not correct to say that conservative voters have abandoned the Tory government. The government has abandoned conservative voters. I think that's right. I very much agree with the importance that reform, of which, of course, Nigel Farage is the chair, Richard Tice is the current leader, the two work very closely. Yeah. Reform now, I wouldn't say holding the balance of power, but certainly influencing the outcome in both those by-elections. And it's also true, as you say, that in both cases, it wasn't that the Labour vote went up a lot, because it didn't. Hardly at all. It's that the Tories stayed at home. And you've been saying that for a long time, and that very much reflects our Planet Normal inbox, doesn't it? Absolutely. The question is, Alison, Tory voters stayed at home knowing that the future of the government was in jeopardy. It wasn't a general election. They wanted to give the Conservatives a bloody nose. Potentially, in both cases, there were issues linked to the outgoing Tory MP, one of whom, of course, was mired in scandal. He denies wrongdoing the other of whom has basically abandoned her constituency. Again, she'd deny that by appearing on reality TV shows and taking a year to resign, as it were. So in both local situations, there was an awful lot of upset people, upset Conservatives, and also the Conservative rank and file didn't vote for Rishi Sunak in the leadership election, and yet they've got him as Prime Minister. The question is, will those Tories stay away and not vote Tory when they know that not voting Tory could lead to a Labour government? That is the only thing that the Conservatives have got to cling on to. But, you know, Keir Starmer is not as scary as Jeremy Corbyn. Some centrist voters would say he's not scary at all. I don't think yet he's built mass appeal. He's certainly built appeal within a lot of the Labour rank and file, though, of course, he's got a very powerful left wing that he's going to have to manage. And I say again, if Keir Starmer is going to win, the most dangerous form of Labour government will be a Labour government with a small majority, because he would then be beholden to the campaign group of hard left and you know left MPs who have ideas about how to run the economy and to run society that a lot of middle ground British voters won't agree with. But you're absolutely right. A crushing blow for Rishi Sunak. I was talking to senior conservatives, you know, the day before, and they were saying, you know, I think we're going to pull this off. We might actually win one or both of these seats. There were just a few hundred votes in it either way and votes that were garnered, as you say, by reform. But now, you know, you've been writing Rishi Sunak should go. He's a year in, which means people can start submitting letters to Sir Graham Brady once again. I wonder if that's happening. I wouldn't rule it out. And I don't think you would either. Well, I think what you've just said, I would absolutely, I don't know what I'm going to bet you now. I'm running out of things to bet you. I think we're up to three gin and tonics in the King's Arms, aren't we? Yeah, but you've bought them all for me already because <laughs> I, I win all our bets. <laughs> <laughs> Over about a year, 18 months ago, I had lunch with Chris Evans, who's the editor of the Daily Telegraph. And I said to Chris that our readers, Telegraph readers, the absolute base of the Conservatives were so angry that I thought that the Conservatives could be down to between 150 and even under 100 seats in the Commons after the 2024 general election. And of course, we laughed like jackals, not out of laughter, laughter, but just out of like, oh, my God. So we're on what, 350 now? Yeah. Could go to 150. That would be unbelievable. I think 
that's where we could be now, Liam, realistically. And I do think that our focus group, both in Planet Normal and at the Telegraph, of course, I think if the absolute hardcore conservatives are saying no more while we've got this shower there. Somebody wrote to me, they say, what was it Leslie Phillips used to say? A bloody shower. <laughs> he also used to say, how are you? Ding dong. Ding dong. <laughs> They just want to go back to a time when a beautiful yeah. woman would walk in and a man in a cravat with a cigarette and a cigarette holder would say, hello there, ding, ding dong. dong. And the woman would be happy. <laughs> I think women would still be happy, but they're not just supposed to pretend that they're not happy. So anyway, yeah, I think this is absolute Armageddon for the Conservatives. And I say that actually with no great pleasure. But I did call in the column this week for letters of no confidence to go into the 1922 committee. I've heard that there are about 25 Tory MPs who are prepared to put in a letter of no confidence about the Prime Minister. Now, listeners may be saying, what the hell is she smoking? Because obviously we can't have yet another leader. My sense, Liam, now is that this is not about aiming for a victory. I think what we are looking at for the Conservatives now is trying to minimise the scale of the defeat. And under Rishi Sunak, we're talking about, you know, Titanic and icebergs time, really. So you quoted some of the stats at the top of the programme. But if you actually think that even the very modest expectations of the Prime Minister that were reflected in the polling when Sunak took over a year ago, half of Britons are now saying he has been a poor or terrible PM with just 11% thinking he's been good or great. And handling the economy a year ago, that was the one issue on which he was really shining. Trust in him on the economy has completely evaporated. We've got 62% now saying they have little or no confidence in the Prime Minister's handling of the economy. And then you look further down, Liam, and you see these terrible, terrible numbers. So on that traditional conservative strength, immigration, 75% of voters distrust the Conservative Prime Minister on immigration. That is absolutely catastrophic. Keir Starmer is more trusted on immigration than the Prime Minister of a Conservative government. So this is a guy who is not only going down, he is going down and he is taking his party with him. And I suggested in the column, rather mischievously, that you might as well get the women in to clear up the mess. Sound like you. (laughs) Unlike me. Uh, yeah, so I suggested Kemi Badenoch, we're big fans, Suella Braverman, Pretty Patel, hardcore conservatives who I think only, literally, if you look back, I mean, how could we possibly look at a conservative government where these milksops surrounding this milksops. prime minister? Milksops. He's a bit Tim Nice but dim, isn't he? <laughs> It's obviously terribly nice. Can I, can I just say the way you, you said no about a couple of minutes ago, I'm sure... A lot of Planet Normal listeners of a certain vintage thought you were going to say, no sacomial. No sacomial. Oh, God, we haven't had that for ages, have we? Don't worry, the COVID inquiry, we'll soon be talking about it again. (laughs) We need to go back to that because that's a disgrace as well. But yeah, so I do think we are now looking at minimising the scale of the defeat because people are talking about after the defeat in 2024, how the Conservative Party can recalibrate itself. But what I'm saying to you, Liam, is how many people are going to be left with a seat? Because you could well see, I mean, Jeremy Hunt will be swept away in 
Surrey, no great tears there because, you know, he's absolutely useless as well. We all remember, don't we, the, well, those of us who were old enough remember in the 1997 election when the, were you up for Portillo? When Michael yeah. Portillo, yeah. who was a member of the cabinet, very respected, he was swept away in Enfield, wasn't he, by little Stephen Twig, which was quite Who funny. had a wonderful grin on his face at the time when he actually yes. won, didn't he? When he actually won. But I think we would be looking at maybe a third of the cabinet. There is no safe conservative seat in the country now. So we are at an extraordinary juncture. We were watching one of Rishi's speeches the other day and my beloved other half, who you know, who has no interest in politics at all. But he said that... Probably the best way to live in your house, isn't it? Absolutely. Claim, claim no interest in politics. But he's got a great deal of interest in unloading the dishwasher and cooking. He does. He does. <laughs> but he said to me, whenever Rishi's coming to the end of a speech, you always expect him to conclude... And finally, headmaster, because he's absolute <laughs> head boy, isn't he, Rishi? I mean, obviously, probably very, very clever, probably very, very nice, decent family person. But he just hasn't done it for the public. And I don't know, will the Conservatives summon up the gumption to tip him overboard? Or will they now think now they have to, you know, it's the charge of the light brigade, isn't it, really? That's that's what's coming. It may be they go down to 150 seats Alison, which would be less than 97, which was 165 seats. I remember that election, yeah. like I covered it for the Financial Times. Or it may be that the economy turns round and it may be that Labour's left starts saying stupid things and getting complacent and the Tories can actually make a battle out of this. It could still be well over a year until a general election. Now, I'm not saying that the balance of probabilities isn't with you, but for the sake of argument... Yeah. And for the sake of a discussion, there are still Tory strategists who believe that they can pull this off. But it all depends on the economy. But as you say, the economy is not looking good. Some survey numbers came out this week, the so-called Purchasing Manager Index numbers, showing that the UK economy is contracting now. It will be interesting to see if that is corroborated when the official GDP numbers come out. We're just escaping recession by the skin of our teeth. The Bank of England may be stupid enough on the 2nd of November to mm. raise interest rates again. Hopefully they won't. But more than that, there is now real fear on global bond markets. Now, you not, may not be interested in bond markets, mm. Alison, but they are interested in you. And when bond markets take umbrage, the whole world notices because <laughs> that's when you get sort of 2008-style situations. And I'm not saying we're going to head for one. What I am saying is that very serious people are suggesting that we might, with this confluence of geopolitics, with the oil price rising, with governments seriously in debt and yields on government debt, the amount of money that investors demand for governments to borrow off them and roll over their existing debts, they are going up and up and up. They're at the highest in 25 years, the highest in 30 years in some major economies. So there is an awful lot of economic fear out there. And we know from electoral history throughout the ages that even if a market collapse isn't the Tories' fault, because we've got our debt relatively under control, they will argue. I mean, our debt is still too high. Our debt service costs are very, very high most months. But wherever some kind of spectacular correction, some kind of tipping point Whatever the catalyst, be it in you know, Thailand as it was in 97 or, or Wall Street as it was in 2008, the incumbent government in the UK will get the blame. 
And it may be that what really does for the Tories is some kind of big financial market correction. We shall see. But look, we should move on briefly to Israel. I do want to hear a lot more about your October declaration. I do think it was a very important intervention from you, from the Telegraph, from our friend and friend of Planet Normal, Laura Dodsworth, who Mm. I know spearheaded this, author, of course, of State of Fear, really superb book about the government's response to COVID. So tell us a bit more about the declaration, Alison, and who signed it. So Laura got in touch with me and a few of us, Toby Young, obviously chairman of the Free Speech Union, Francis Hall, barrister, Emma Webb of GB News and and elsewhere. And I think what we wanted to express by drawing up this October declaration, which unequivocally opposes anti-Semitism and wants to support Israel's right to defend herself. But the focus is very much on Jews in Britain who we felt were feeling lonely, scared, isolated, not being spoken up for. We obviously saw very, very soon after the massacres of 7th of October, we saw a giant march through London by pro-Palestinian protesters. We had another march last Saturday. I understand we're going to be having another march this coming Saturday. And we've seen a huge rise in anti-Semitism in the UK. The group that monitors this for the Jewish community is talking about a 1,350% rise in anti-Semitic attacks on this period last year. Listeners will have seen people tearing down even the posters of hostages taken by the horrible hammer thugs, people even drawing Hitler moustaches on the children who've been kidnapped. Absolutely dreadful. So we felt that there were shameful examples. We also felt that we hadn't seen a sufficiently robust approach from the Metropolitan Police. I shared with you, Liam, didn't I, that there were people in one of the marches who were shouting jihad and at a Hizbut Tahir rally shouting jihad, which normally means holy war, but which the Metropolitan Police has suddenly drafted in some Islamic scholars to say that you may think this means holy war and is really terrifying members of the public. But we've got people here who say it can actually mean in certain circumstances, have a nice cuppa and sit down. We don't think the police have been robustly applying the law when there has been clear anti-Semitism and incitement to racial hatred. And I said in my column, I felt if there had been people inciting hatred against Muslims, that they would have moved in quickly. And also we were concerned with the October Declaration, which by the way, any listeners who want to sign can go to britishfriendsofisrael.org. We felt that the BBC and other media had been prevaricating about calling Hamas what it is, clearly a terrorist organisation. So that's what we decided to put forward this uh, October declaration to give reassurance and to show solidarity. We also, by the way, and before listeners get incensed, we very much we had Sir Tom Stoppard, one of our main uh, supporters of the declaration, one of our greatest writers. Tom was involved in correcting the declaration, making absolutely sure that we had a section which talked about the tragedy and the suffering of the Palestinians. So this is not a partisan document. It's to give comfort and support to Jews living in this country. And we never thought, Liam, 
in the 21st century that such a thing would be necessary. But we have now, I think we are going over 60,000 signatures after two days. And we have people from the arts, Tim Rice, Tom Stoppard, Maureen Lippman, Rachel Riley. But we also have an absolute raft of top professors, top media people. It's a pretty impressive list and, and it is being picked up. But it's just we wanted to put this landmark down at a time when we feel that things could turn very, very ugly. We should just comment on his book to hear. This is an extremist Islamist organisation that's banned in Germany. It's banned in China. It's banned in Russia. It's banned in Turkey, Indonesia, Bangladesh, most Arab countries. And yet it's allowed to exist in the UK, spreading poison across a lot of the Muslim community, the overwhelming majority of which, of course, is peaceful and law-abiding and and a credit to themselves, their religion and to this country. And yet you get these really extremist guys. I have no idea why we accommodate his book to here. I really don't. And also, I think it's fair to say, wherever you are on this debate, and we'll be reading out some emails from Planet Normal listeners later, and it's clear that Planet Normal listeners have a range of views And we must make sure that their views are reflected here on Planet Normal. And we do. But it strikes me, whichever end of the telescope you're looking at this from, how is the Jewish population meant to feel? You know, a lot of which is in London, particularly North London, Mm. when you have now weekly demonstrations where the police are mollifying people using language that can only be described as a hate crime. It seems completely mad to me. And any peace-loving, reasonable Londoner, Brit, who takes a nuanced view on this, as we know many people do, they must feel disturbed that these demonstrations now are getting so vociferous. And if they're going to become weekly and frequent, that is going to really scare a lot of one community in our country, a community that has every right to live here and has made massive contributions to this country across a range of headings. So I'm not saying the police have got an easy job. They haven't got an easy job. But from what I've seen, they are not being even handed and they are they are indulging uh, extremists who are out to make trouble. They should be doing a bit more policing and a bit less community relations in this instance, in my view. I'm going to say something, Liam, that actually feels quite strong, um, but I do feel it. So I've heard of two Jewish women this week who were basically told by the police or, or security people to take off their Star of David necklaces and brooch, lest they be identified and potentially be in danger. This seems to me to be completely wrong, that the people who are doing nothing to incite hatred are having to alter their behaviour to appease a growing number of people who I, I'm afraid, I think the police are not capable of dealing with those big marches. And I think that we have a lot of issues, as you say, not from mainstream Muslims. We're seeing a huge amount of hate stirred up in some of the more radicalised mosques that we should say to listeners that there are very normal mosques. Absolutely. And then there are the ones which have the much more Saudi influence. And I've seen two videos of imams in mosques giving horrible 
horrible sermons this week, basically saying every Muslim has to be on the side of Hamas. Uh, In fact, what's often suppressed and hasn't been reported in the media is about a year ago in the Gaza Strip, you saw Gazans on the streets protesting the cruelty and the thuggery of Hamas, and they are then tortured and imprisoned, and Palestinians are being prevented from fleeing their homes and fleeing the Israeli bombardment by Hamas, who do not care how many Palestinians die. And I just want to end, Liam, by saying that there was something, I don't know if listeners have picked this up, there has been a terror attack in the UK in the past fortnight. And the Daily Telegraph reported that the authorities are deliberately withholding details of that attack from the public. There are severe restrictions on what the media can reveal on this terror attack in the UK. And the suspect is said to be an asylum seeker who arrived in the UK in 2020 and was believed to have said that his terror attack was as a result of the actions in Gaza. Now, this again, this really sounds a warning to me that the authorities know that certain parts of the United Kingdom are a tinderbox and that mass immigration has created in certain areas people who the police may feel that they cannot control. And it's extremely worrying that the media is not being allowed to report on a terror attack, lest it be inflammatory. That's not how things are supposed to work in a free country. I'm Helena Morrissey, and I've worked in investments for over three decades. I'm also the mother of nine. And now I'm working with Telegraph Money, your new and complete guide to being better off. Whether it's paying for your children's education or navigating the career ladder, I'm here to help you make the best decisions for you and your loved ones. You'll find valuable insights and expert opinion, plus a range of useful tools and calculators. Search Telegraph Money today. Housing is an issue that could well determine the next general election. Why? Because millions of 25 to 45 year old swing voters are cheesed off with soaring housing costs, be it sky high rents or what they feel is the impossibility of buying a place of their own. Today's young adults are paying more to keep a roof over their head and are less likely to be owner occupiers than any generation since the 1930s. They're angry, feeling their life chances are being thwarted. Rishi Sunak doesn't seem to get this. He didn't mention housing at all in his party conference speech. Keir Starmer, in contrast, put housing at the centre of his address, pledging to loosen up the planning system and build new towns in a bid to woo younger voters, even if others are annoyed. I've written Home Truth, Alison, as you know, a book on the UK's chronic housing shortage. And while researching that book and since, one of the smartest housing analysts I've met is the former policy manager at the revered housing charity Shelter No Less, a young woman called Rose Grayston. Here she is. Rose, you and I have talked about housing and planning for a long time. I mean, I'm a nerd on housing. You're a sort of super nerd. Um, So you must be pretty pleased that yet again, it's returned to the top of the political agenda, particularly in Keir Starmer's conference speech. 
I'm definitely pleased to see housing back on the political agenda. It looks like housing is going to be a major source of debate around a general election. That seems like a really good and healthy thing to me because we really need as a country to confront some tough choices um, about what we want our housing policy to deliver. So, you know, the big one is, do we want high home ownership rates? Do we want home ownership to be accessible to a widespread of the population at different income levels? Or do we want homeowners to be able to make a lot of money out of home ownership? Those two goals are intention. And I hope that housing being back on the political agenda will, will force a discussion about um, that trade-off amongst many, many others. Now, I know you are very much a part of Generation Rent, if you like, with all respect. You and your contemporaries, Mike's generation, are really having trouble getting on the housing ladder. You're spending more on your housing, whether you've got a mortgage or renting, and you're less likely to own a home than any generation since the 1930s. How much of an issue is this for your generation, Rose, and your generation of voters? I think it's a massive issue. At Labour Party conference, I was hearing about just how well Keir Starmer's messages about planning reform, uh, Labour being the builders, not the blockers, just how well that message is going down with some potential Tory swing voters, in particular younger people for whom home ownership is, is seen as a right. It's an expectation. The idea that if you have a decent job, if you have a decent salary, you should be able to save up and you should be able to buy a home and buy your housing security. So for that part of the electorate, it is a massive failure of politics that that is no longer available, that now really your route to housing security in this country is inheritance or to access a very limited stock of social housing. And that's really worrying for the social contract. We shouldn't be relying on people having to, on happening to have wealthy family members that they can inherit from in order to have basic housing security. For the bulk of young people who are in the private rented sector, you are vulnerable to eviction with two months notice at any time for no reason at all. You can be evicted with Section 21 no fault eviction notice still. We've been waiting for about four years for legislation promised from the Conservatives to, to correct that. Uh, but at the moment, we're still in a situation where private renters can be evicted with two months notice. And that's been happening. It's been happening more and more and more over the last year. There has been a huge turnover of private tenancies. It now feels like a crisis for the people living in it. And of course, it really is a crisis for lower income people who are living in the private rental sector as rents have shot up. It's become less secure. The quality difference between home ownership and private renting is larger than it's ever been. So there's a sharp end crisis where it's really affecting children's education, families' ability to, to get on. And there's a political crisis where this promise that if you work hard, that you should be able to save up and buy your own home is, is now broken. And it's now revealed that the only way to access wealth in this country is inheritance. That's not a healthy place to be. We do now have a lower level of home ownership than the average across the European Union. So we're not so much a nation of homeowners anymore. And that reflects the overall shortage of homes in the UK. What's the biggest reason, in your view, for the shortage of homes in the UK? The biggest reason for the shortage of homes in the UK is that we've got a house building system which does not aim to build enough homes. It's not aiming to do that. Um, the big developers who control the vast majority of 
land that's suitable for residential development in this country, they're not trying to build lots of homes for all the people that want them. They're trying to build some homes which deliver high profit margins. And this is a big change that we've seen since the great financial crash. The largest developers really changed their strategy to a margins over volume strategy. And since 2014, the gross profits of the big three, that's Taylor, Wimpy, Barrett and Persimmon, their gross profit margins have reached 32% at points and have never fallen below 17%. That is a huge margin when you're doing something that's a very basic technology. These guys aren't tech gurus, are they? They're doing something very basic. They're building homes. The technology has been around for decades. There should be low barriers to entry, and yet they're making margins of 30% plus. Absolutely. And these margins are higher than they were before the great financial crisis. And you think it's because they're deliberately restricting supply. So there are fewer homes out there. They drip feed the market. So they make more money on each home and they make more money overall by building fewer homes. Well, perhaps the word deliberate is a bit unfair on the house builders there. I think it's certainly conscious they know what they're doing, but they're responding to a house building system which is regulated by government and which the government is ultimately responsible for. And I think that that we need to look to government um, to find out why this has happened. So we've had a number of big changes over the last 10 years. We've had schemes which have boosted demand for housing, like Help to Buy, which have inflated sales prices for the big developers and have allowed them to wind down their own shared equity schemes and have also squeezed out The SME house builders haven't had access to those schemes. The smaller, medium-sized enterprise guys who build out planning permissions very quickly because they need the cash flow, right? We now have far fewer of those players in the market. We've had a big consolidation of the house building sector. It's gotten much worse, and that's obviously been damaging for the level of competition that we have in the construction sector. We've also had a number of planning changes since 2012. There's a lot of talk in the media at the moment about the need for planning reform. We've actually had a lot of planning reform over the last decade. You can see it as we've had a decades-long experiment in reforming and liberalising the planning system in exactly the ways that many people are now asking for. The government has directed the planning system to give out many more residential planning permissions, yet the market has failed to deliver new homes in anything like the quantities needed to correct our supply and demand imbalance and allow prices and rents to come down. The market has not delivered new homes in anything like the proportion of increased planning permissions we've had. So we've had many more planning permissions, we've had a bit more housing supply, but nowhere near as much. The system has given out more planning permissions, but house builders have not responded, and the reason is because it is more profitable for house builders to focus on margins than on volume, to make a lot of money on each home they sell and to sell homes as slowly as needed, to keep prices high, to keep making those high profit margins. They make more money that way. And politicians have ultimately set up that system. So it's politicians that we need to look to for the answers to this problem. It's not a question of of house builders being nasty. They're just responding to rational incentives in the market. It strikes me, Rose, that there are over a million planning permissions outstanding. So planning permission for a million homes, flats and houses that aren't being used. There's permission to build them, but they end up not being built precisely because the planning permissions are taken by the large developers And then they're not used because they want to sort of have some kind of contrived scarcity, as as you've described. What do we do? 
So if we want to solve the housing crisis, the state needs to actively shape the market for housing. We've tried having market-led planning for the last 10 years. We've seen developers have much more choice over where they build roughly the same number of homes they would have built anyway. So what we've had is a huge amount of car-dependent suburban sprawl, not very good for the environment, not very good for people, a really inefficient use of land. What we need is to disrupt the chokehold the development industry has over land supply and housing supply and we need to force it to diversify its output so that means identifying government identifying the right places for major new developments assembling land to make it happen punt priming investment in new developments such as through major infrastructure and that should take the form of more delivery of a greater range of housing types so flats as well as houses social housing as well as market housing Everything in between, all of the things that are needed to respond to different kinds of demand out there, the more different kinds of demand we're responding to in a given housing market, the faster we can build homes, the faster we can get ourselves out of this mess. And it also means an active role for planning in acquiring large scale sites and then servicing them for SME and custom builders. So creating more opportunities for small and medium sized construction companies by preparing the plot, the public sector designing the scheme in partnership with the private sector, of course, but to respond to public needs. And then just letting the construction sector get on with building those homes out rather than the construction sector having this massive role in deciding what homes are going to be built where for whom. And actually, this is how the post Second World War new towns were built out. Um, It wasn't all done by the public sector. It wasn't all done by local authority builders. It was done overwhelmingly by private house builders. So we're simply talking about a return to an approach that's been used before and that has delivered four million homes very quickly, many of which are still well loved and lived in today. Now, I try and avoid using the word NIMBY, Rose, not in my backyard, because it's a pejorative term. And I live in a beautiful market town in North Essex, and many of my closest friends would be described as NIMBYs. And I kind of understand where they're coming from, because so many houses have been built around our town, and yet there's not the infrastructure there. There's not the schools, the hospitals, the the road capacity, and so on. And I think that's why new towns are a good idea. What's your view of NIMBYs, Rose? And what's your view of new towns? So on NIMBYs, I think you're absolutely right in what you say, Liam. The quality of development that we've had in recent years has been really poor. It's been car-dependent sprawl. It's leached off of existing infrastructure rather than providing new public transport options, new doctor surgeries, new schools and the like. And so a lot of people see new development as a threat. I'm not surprised that people who live in areas that have seen faster rates of house building don't want to see more of it because um, you've got this division between the people who need new homes and the people who are already well housed and the people who are already well housed aren't seeing much benefit from new development and it clearly looks and feels wasteful it could be done better and in order to do better in order to build places which are really responding to local housing need which are providing homes for people that otherwise wouldn't have them supporting local economies so that we can actually have some public sector workers affording to live near to the services they work in and providing infrastructure making places better we need a different way of delivering homes and we need to be in particular looking at the profit that is made from building homes and how we spread that around. 
because at the moment it's being captured overwhelmingly by landowners. Clearly, it's being captured by developers as well with their 32% profit margins. We need more of that for the community. We've done it in the past. We can do it again. Actually, both the Conservative government and the Labour Party have proposals out at the moment about how to do this technically and legally complicated exercise. But this is a critical part of the solution, is sharing that profit around rather than allowing landowners and developers to give people some housing. It has to be accepted because it's that or nothing. We need to get out of that that or nothing game and into a place where we can say yes to the development that we do want rather than just no to development that we don't want. This is taking us to exactly where the detailed debate about housing is in Whitehall, in Westminster, among the think tanks between people like me and you who follow this very closely. So let me just unpack it. Now, when agricultural land is given planning permission, the value of that land can rocket two, three hundred fold. In many other countries, Australia, Germany, the Netherlands, parts of America, South Korea, that land value uplift, that planning uplift is shared between the landowner and local authorities, isn't it? So the local authorities can use that money generated to build infrastructure as the houses are being built by private developers. In the UK, we have this weird feudal system where the entire value of the uplift goes to the landowner. And that is the main reason, in my view, why housing is so expensive, because the land is so expensive, because there's lots of speculative pressure. And if we could share that planning game, then everyone could win. Labour have put forward policies, haven't they, where the entire planning game goes to the local authority, with the landowner getting only agricultural value. Do you think that's a good idea? We are at the moment signatories to the European Convention on Human Rights. And because of that, property rights have a level of legal protection in this country. That means that the state would find it very difficult to purchase land from landowners without giving any compensation at all. Now, lots of clumsy language. It would pay the agricultural value, wouldn't it? Rather than paying the value that reflects the fact that this thing's going to get residential planning permission, the so-called hope value. Yeah, so there's agricultural value, the value of the land in its starting state. There's hope value, the value of the land based on the assumption that this land would get residential planning permission and would then be used for its most profitable purpose possible. So it's going to be used to build, you know, detached executive homes, even if it takes us 30 years to build them out because we're, we're going fishing in a very limited pool of demand when we build like that. The current system gives landowners a right to claim hope value even if their land doesn't have any planning permission on it at all. And the UK is an outlier. We're unusual in the world for doing that, right? Very unusual, yes. And there are a number of proposals about what we do about this. So there's the proposal that we just cut out all of the hope value. So we don't have any more value that is dependent on planning permissions for luxury housing that don't actually exist. That gets you to a much fairer value. There's the proposal that you share this uplift, the difference in value of land in agricultural use and its most profitable possible use. There's this idea that you split that 50-50 between the landowner and the public sector. I'd argue that this really misses the point because what we should be trying to do here is not build the most profitable possible schemes that we can imagine and not use that as the bar for what land is worth. We need to build homes to meet need and build doctor surgeries and schools and give land back to nature and all the rest of it. There's a lot of things we need to do with land. 
if we take as our measure of a true market value the most profitable use we can imagine, we are setting a standard for how we value land that makes it impossible to use it to do the things we need to do with it, like building affordable home ownership, like building social housing, like investing in nature recovery and the rest of it. That would be tantamount to having the taxpayer subsidise that expensive land back down to a price where it can be used to do all the things we need to do with it. So it's not a question of maximising profit and sharing that more equally. What we really need to do is design housing schemes that will meet the, the needs that we have and use those plans to set the land price. There are certainly conversations in the Labour Party about that as well. And of course, people also are looking at land value capture as a way of getting hold of some funding to introduce some policies in a really tough economic environment. And I think sometimes the potential of land value capture is being misunderstood and misinterpreted. Let's talk briefly about social housing, council housing, uh, the National Housing Federation, which of course is the umbrella group for housing associations, the not-for-profits that build a lot of our social housing these days. They say that the council house social housing waiting list is going to increase by a third between now and 2030 to over one and a half million vulnerable households. How bad is the situation when it comes to social housing, council housing in this country? We've been losing social homes every year. We talk a lot about not building enough social housing. The initial goal for the next government has to be to get social housing into net positive supply. We've lost an average of 14,000 social homes every year for the last 10 years. That's through right to buy. It's because we've been demolishing social homes. It's because we've been converting homes from social rent into other tenures. We've been doing all sorts of things to run down the stock of social housing. So with social housing, it's not just that supply isn't keeping up with demand, it's that we're actively giving away this crucial policy tool in the fight against homelessness. And if we let it be, social housing can actually be something which underpins successful local economies in terms of allowing low-income workers to live near to their jobs. We're so far away from that right now. Social housing in most places does function as a crisis service. So any further reduction we see in social housing just means more households, more families living in temporary accommodation, in hotels, in situations where it's just not suitable for children to be growing up. So it's a really bad situation and it's leading to rife exploitation of the taxpayer as well. Because we've now got a situation where private landlords know that they can evict their tenants with two months notice using a Section 21 no-fault eviction and they can convert those homes into temporary accommodation and into emergency accommodation. And they can charge the taxpayer much more rent for those homes. So what we're seeing is quite large numbers of homes leaving the long term private rented sector and entering temporary accommodation, emergency housing, where the taxpayer can get rinsed to house the same people in the same homes in a lot of cases. And this is a scandal. We shouldn't be allowing the owners of these homes to do it. But the state should never have allowed the owners of those homes to be in a position where they have this much power over homeless people and over the taxpayer. Rose Grayston, thanks a lot for joining us on Planet Normal. Well, Liam, I learned so much from Rose. Absolutely fascinating. I mean, we don't all think of housing as being a kind of riveting topic, as you say, but it's so important. And I would say, speaking as a mum who has two young adults themselves who are renting with 
very little prospect of being able to save up from their wage. The rents are so sky high, as Rose said. Kids, unless they inherit, what have we become where you have to have a sizable inheritance to get on the property ladder? And that, of course, is having a huge knock-on effect, Liam, on the birth rate, amongst other things, because people want to have a roof over their heads before they commit to having children. And that's taking them longer and longer. It's harder and harder to save up. And I thought Rose said so many interesting things, particularly about these vast profit margins that the developers are making, the failure to provide infrastructure. And as she also said, which we can all see around our own towns, is these developments stuck miles from anywhere. So everyone has to drive everywhere. Very, very environmentally unfriendly. But I thought she was superb. And I should also say to Planet Normal listeners that I present this podcast with one of the United Kingdom's housing luminaries. I have purchased many copies of Home Truths. One of? <laughs> what are you on about? The premier, the premier housing expert. <laughs> and every time Liam comes to my house, he scans the bookshelves looking for Home Truths. But the truth is I have pressed it upon... You move it around just to wind me up. <laughs> I, me on my toes. I found it in the fridge the other day. <laughs> <laughs> it's in the dog basket mainly, but... <laughs> I bought so many copies and believe it or not, given it to friends who come in. I mean, they scuttle out the door. <laughs> Good way to get them to run out the house. <laughs> Have you read my friend Liam's book on housing? But no, but it is brilliant. And as you said at the top, this is a huge issue for the country, specifically for the younger population, and absolutely unbelievable. Another sign of Rishi tone-deaf Sunak's, you know, how out of touch he is that he didn't mention that in his conference speech, and all credit, actually, to Sakir Starmer for putting that front and centre of a future Labour government. Now on to our listener emails. Your messages sent to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We love to read your thoughts and we learn so much from you, the citizens of Planet Normal. Well, we've had a lot of reaction, Liam, to the by-elections. I love this one. This is from Haywood. Rishi Sunak doesn't have a mandate from anyone. Hunt is universally loathed. Immigration levels, both legal and illegal, are off the scale. The tax take is at a 70-year high. The civil service appears corrupted by wokery. The London mayor has gone rogue. The Met police are a disaster. Stop. I can't stand it anymore. Stop. <laughs> this is our country. Let me carry on. The roads are awful and the railways seemingly permanently on strike. The government persists with a clearly insane net zero agenda. The NHS is basically non-functioning and Islamists are allowed to show support for Hamas at the Cenotaph a week after the worst pogrom since the Holocaust. In these circumstances, I'm surprised anyone that voted Conservative in 2019 would ever vote for them again, that they received any votes in those by-elections is only a reflection of how pitiful Labour truly are. And Dave says, as long as Sunak and Hunt lead the party, we will stay at home. Don't think the threat of a Labour government will move us. That's how deeply angry we are. OK, let's broach Israel Hamas now. This is from Phil. Dear Alison and Liam, I was shocked listening to Liam read out that email on Planet Normal from Dr Charlie. He said you wouldn't read his words, and that was just one of the many things he got wrong in his barrage of misinformation, including the whopper, says Phil, that Gaza is akin to, quotes an open-air prison. People like Dr Charlie specialise in words like but and however. In his case, he wrote a handful of words about the terrorist murder of 1,400 Israeli civilians and then utilised however to quickly move on to the main thrust of his argument. 
Obviously, no one condones the atrocities that occurred, said Dr. Charlie. However, just eight words, then about 1,400 killings, quickly followed by many more about how bad Israel is. Textbook. Would anyone ever dare to say something like, obviously, the death of children at the Ariana Grande concert was sad. However, Dr. Charlie's email then became even worse. He outlined why he believed 7.10 occurred. Of course, that's a reference to the 7th of October. Blaming it, of course, on Israel. Dr. Charlie said people on planet normal should know this was not an unprovoked attack. And there you have it. The blind idiocy of people who somehow feel the murder of 1,400 civilians was justified or had its roots outside of those who committed that atrocity. Tell me, Dr. Charlie, says Phil. Which beheaded baby was it who provoked this attack? Which gang-raped Jewish woman provoked this attack? Which of the young festival-goers provoked this attack? None of these people provoked Hamas to do anything, but it's clear that you believe the murder of innocents was somehow justified. Feelings running very high, but in the interests of balance and journalism, in contrast to Phil's heartfelt few, here's an email from Sarah. Dear Alison and Liam, I'm such a huge fan of Planet Normal and have always valued your searching and astute journalism. However, I agree, says Sarah, with Dr. Charlie, whose letter you read out last week. The terrible terrorist events in Israel and the subsequent Israeli response is simply unimaginable in terms of the cost to innocent human life. The Palestinians are not Hamas, although they are their elected representatives. And this extreme right-wing Israeli government does not represent the views of many Israelis, although they are their elected representatives. It is time for much more balanced commentary on this from Planet Normal, says Sarah. The history of this region is so complicated, but needs to be recalled because today's terrible events cannot be taken out of context. I hope you'll be able to have guests representing both sides in the coming weeks. All best wishes, and I hope you can both find a way to comment on and analyse this issue in a much more balanced manner. Best wishes, Sarah. Well, we should say, Liam, we've had an enormous quantity of emails and feelings are running very, very high. I somehow managed to get accused by a lovely Jewish listener of betraying Israel <laughs> in the week that I helped found British Friends of Israel, but there we are, and also accused from the other side. So I think maybe I'm getting the balance, Sarah. Maybe being attacked by everybody is revealing that somehow we are striving, aren't we, Liam? And we know the minefield that we're walking through. Yeah, It's emotional, isn't it, for both of us? It is very emotional and I can see nobody wants innocent civilians who are caught up in this, as far as I could see, but horrible extremist leadership on both sides. But anyway, this is from Paul, also on that subject. Dear Alison Liam, I have to express disappointment at your decision toward Dr. Charlie, the email of the week. Here we go. He was so concerned that your comments about the situation in Gaza were unbalanced that he felt obliged to give a potted history of the problem dating back to 1948 when the State of Israel was established. He need not have been so concerned that the facts were not available to other Planet Normal listeners, as his version of the events is in line with all the Palestinian commentators who've been interviewed on Sky and the BBC. Dr. Charlie also had personal information about the real situation, as his daughter had worked there as a nurse and had seen 400 Palestinians shot during a peaceful protest. Why was Dr. Charlie's daughter at such a protest? As well as observing this, did his daughter catch sight of the construction of 300 miles of tunnels made to cross under the border to Israel to launch terrorist attacks? Imagine what those funds used to undertake this could have bought for the hospitals in Gaza above the ground. Did she see any of the hundreds of rockets fired indiscriminately at Israel, some of which didn't manage to make it into Israel and they explode in Gaza? Yes, if Dr. Charlie's daughter had been working in the hospital in Gaza, she may well be dead. 
killed by one of Hamas's own rockets. What I find most disappointing is that Dr. Charlie is so outraged at your lack of balance. He is prepared never to listen to your sweet voice of reason ever again. He is, of course, not alone in feeling so ardent about the Palestinian cause. 2,000 lovies wrote to the government about the bombing in Gaza. The LGBTQ brigade have piled on board, as well as many hardcore socialists who simply want Israel to disappear. Ordinarily, the marching of this motley gang and their shouting of slogans would not matter too much. But when listeners to Planet Normal, conservatives with a small C like Dr. Charlie, imply that the solution to the conflict lies entirely in Israel's hands without condemning unreservedly the actions of terrorists, the mob feels they are being given backing to carry out anti-Semitic attacks across the globe. As it happens, my daughter is a teacher at a Jewish school in North London. On the Friday of the day of action called by Hamas, her nursery class of four-year-olds had 11 children instead of the normal 21. Their parents were scared that there might be copycat murders of children similar to those that Hamas had carried out on October the 7th. This, Dr Charlie, is a result of the balanced reporting you are so concerned to hear. What a pity. Paul he says from Paul, a long time listener to Planet Normal, and I will carry on listening, whatever you do with this email. Well done, Paul. And this finally, Alison, is from Alan, who's a huge fan of the Planet Normal archive, of course, which you can access from podcast apps, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you don't understand what I just said, ask somebody under 40. So Alan says, one of the advantages of the rocket of right thinking is that you can also travel back in time listening to the archive. I recommend especially episode five, when former Bank of England Governor Mervyn King more than three years ago warned of the dangers of excessive money printing. It's because he reads all the right columns, Alan. And borrowing at times of low interest rates, which will lead to massive inflation. Not only that. Mervyn King warned that computer models are bad at making long-term predictions because they rely on the assumptions fed into them. Has the Planet Normal Archive been made available to the COVID inquiry? Good idea, Alan. Keep flying, he says. <laughs> and keep flying yourself. And that's it from Planet Normal for another week. As we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reason views, email of the week, Alison! <laughs> Right, so I'm not going to be attacked by everybody this week. I'm going to show the wisdom of Solomon, co-pilot, and we are awarding two mugs, one to, oh. Paul, yeah, one to Paul and one to Sarah, who have both eloquently go. expressed views in a civilised manner, supporting the different sides of this very bitter and tragic argument. So, Paul and Sarah, we assume you don't live together, though you might. <laughs> <laughs> Send us each or a joint email with your home address. Uh, put mug winner in the subject heading and we will send you a rare as rocking horse poo Planet Normal mug. If you enjoy Planet Normal, please, please leave us a rating. There's some lovely ones on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It does help others to find the podcast and we take great comfort and delight as the Planet Normal community grows. Alison, 10 second cat update. Well, Didi the cat is a Muslim, so we are welcoming her <laughs> into our Christian household. I see us as doing a bit for interface dialogue. And it, and it doesn't matter that it's costing £999,000. 
And as we speed away from our beloved planet Normal on that bombshell, no wonder the bond markets across the world are in turmoil, and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers as well, Richard Casso and Louisa Wells. Stay safe, in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. 